Welcome to season six, episode three of The People's Project. Hi Matt, how's it going? We are back. This is real. It's and it looks, real. Do you like it? New, I love the new studio. Very big letters, nice uh, soundproofing, very bright. It's great. Thank you for being our uh, first co-host for this episode. What are, we, having me. what are we talking about today? I think we're talking about lots COVID of COVID and vaccines. No, <laughs> COVID and vaccines. It's your favourite topic. No, well, everyone thinks it's my favourite. I've been forced into talking about it over the last two years. And I'm glad we're talking about something different today. All right, let me tell you what we're talking about today. So we're going to be talking about this election wrap-up where I'm going to take this man to task for um, his results in the Senate. And then uh, prices. Have you seen the cost of everything? I have. Cabbage. Vegetables, yeah. Seven dollars. My brother said he went and he saw uh, cucumbers. He usually buys those ones wrapped in plastic. I don't know why. You should buy the Lebanese loose ones. They're better. But anyway, the continental cucumbers. Mm. He said it was like $6 or something, $4 or something. They should be a dollar fifty. Yeah, they're, they're crazy prices at the moment. For, I saw ginger the other day for $60 a kilo. That's like, normal, isn't it? No, no, Gin- no, no. The, like 30 the local of- Asian grocer near us is like about 40 or something. So okay. Big increase, 50% increase in price. We need to talk about this. Prices going up. Uh, inflation really is what we're talking about, people. And I think we have a big misunderstanding of inflation. And you being a big maths nerd, I'm wondering if you can help us out with the next segment about energy prices and nuclear. That'll be fun. Yeah. And then we have quite a serious segment. We're talking about, what's his name? The Frankston serial killer? Mm. That's full on. I'm new to Victoria, so I'm going to be learning about what's going on there and he's about to come out into the community, so fun times for all. And of course, the most important part of tonight is uh, Amber and Johnny. Okay. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, I, I know who you're talking about, but I don't know much about it. I've seen a few news articles and stuff, so. They were the dogs. They were the Barnaby Joyce dogs thing, right? So Barnaby Joyce yeah, yeah, yeah. had a go at them for bringing their dogs in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was, that was, uh, Another thing that was blown out of proportion, I think, oh, if they want to bring their dogs, I mean, what's wrong with that? Yeah, such a freedom LDP lover over here. All right, people, let's get started. Tonight, the Australian people have voted for change. I am humbled by this victory, and I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. No matter how you voted today, the government I lead will respect every one of you every day. That is our new Prime Minister, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, which I'm sure we're all excited about. Uh, I think he's correct though when he says Australia voted for change. Maybe not the change that you wanted or others wanted, but certainly they, they voted for something different. And I also think it's interesting that in the second part of that clip, he said, I will respect you all the time, every day, everyone, everywhere. I think that's a, I don't think I agree with it, but I think there's a strong um, culture of going towards the feels. You know? Look, I think he's going to have to focus on uh, unifying people because there's a lot of division. I think you're right. People did vote for change. I think one of the really unusual things that happened in this election is that there was no swings towards major parties here. How's that unusual? Oh, okay. It's not normal. No. But we no, knew no. this was coming. We, well, we did know that there was going to be a big uh, surge in minor party votes. Mm. Um, it's quite unusual for a party in opposition to win government with an overall swing against it, though. That seems like a... In the lowest primary vote they've had in a long time. Yeah, very, very low primary vote. So we're at an odd position where we've got like 30, 30% or 33%, whatever it is, uh, of people who wanted Albo. Yeah. It's kind of like the US, right? When you have a very low voter turnout and a very small minority choose the president. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, like you say, there's a minority of people that actually chose to have the Labor Party as their government, but due to the wonders of our preferential system, all those other people that voted got to, you know, say whether they, who they wanted as their second or third or fourth preference, and Labor got there. Okay, well, uh, the overall tone, so there's this survey I just showed you about, this first link, is that the one? Yes, first link survey. Um, Young people in Australia have aged 15 to 19 years have revealed their greatest issues in 2021. 
um, relate to COVID-19, the environment, equality and discrimination. And that's why I say, you know, he's hitting that. I'm going to respect you all. Um, mental health, education and job prospects. This is from Mission Australia's new youth survey report, 2021. Uh, I'm wondering if, are these the biggest issues? Uh, COVID, environment, equality, discrimination, mental health. They just seem less relevant to me now. We're going to be talking later in the show about cost of living, um, energy prices, and these are hard issues. And we're talking about soft issues, about respecting one another, which is important, um, affirming one another, which is important, but they're kind of soft issues. I think a lot of these issues are connected. So the the um, the climate change one, for example, mm. that's related to energy. That's related to cost of living and these other things. So I, I actually think that um, energy and climate change and a lot of these other issues are really the same issue. Okay. So what do you make of the youth uh, obsession, I would say, with some issues like climate change? I don't know. Like, if you asked me what was a big concern of me... Uh, you know, at an election in policy areas, I'd say climate change probably as well. I might have a different view to some of these people, but, you know, just saying that your biggest concern is climate change. Good point. You could be, con you could be concerned about what sort of effect it's going to, these policies are going to have on your life. And I'm assuming... You, yeah. you engage with it. Yeah, I'm assuming they're all green left voters, but you're right, they may not. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm right. very concerned about climate change policy too. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so this first link survey um, says the same thing. Uh, this is, this is an interesting survey. This was about uh, people's top issues. Again, climate change, but then defense, which is interesting. Mm. Do, you think, do you think this is representative of the general population? Because this show is designed to talk to Sally in the suburbs, not, not the teal seats as much. They probably don't watch us. Uh, is this as relevant across the nation or is it only? Are we? Is our media talking about the teal kind of points? Look, the media definitely wants to run certain narratives on things, and a certain segment of the population will pick up on those narratives. I mean, having defence as one of those issues did surprise me when I first saw it on this survey. One of the mm. top issues, but again, I think it's sort of connected. Um, you know, we're in a situation where there's you know, high-profile international conflict at the moment between mm. Russia and UK Ukraine. Lots of people are concerned about. Um, our own security situation, you know, our relationship with other countries such as China. That's right, Penny Wong will fix that. She's a new <coughs> foreign minister. But all these things as well all relate back to, in many ways, back to energy policy, I think. So, really? again, yeah, like a lot of these issues, like, you know, for, exa for example, um, one of the big things that, uh, one of the big levers that Russia's got is their gas supply to the rest of Europe. And, and you know, that's energy that's true. policy. He's done well. Putin's smart to have done that. He can really twist their arm now on energy. I yeah. think we're in a similar situation with China. Yeah, let's talk about energy later on. So let's go back to politics. Mm. So, uh, okay, Labor won this election, right? Is that a fair thing to say? Or, yeah. or did they really just lose it and they just no, scraped I mean, they, together? They, they won it. They have a majority government. And, you know, under our democratic system, they, they won the election. Because it feels a bit like ScoMo lost it, is, is, is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, I see what, you, yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they didn't really put forward a bold vision or agenda or anything, did they? I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel like, you know, Labor was spruiking some sort of radical change or anything that they won on. So, yeah, maybe you're right that... Um, he talked a lot about the feels, like, I'm going to respect yeah. you and we need to do better and, and just generalised statements. Um, what about your election? So you're sitting here tonight, and we don't know if you're a senator in this state or not. No, we don't. But I'll tell you what, I've got the votes mm. of how you went. Can you please explain to me why... It sounds, oh, it sounds offensive to say you did poorly. I just thought you'd do better. Yeah, yeah. I really expected LDP vote to be higher than it was. I think a lot of us expected UAP, One Nation, the freedom-friendly minded parties to do better. What happened? Uh, well, look, our, our, I was hoping, without any sort of rational basis, I was hoping that our primary vote in the Senate would be between 4 and 5%. What is it? It's about... See, it doesn't two, say that. about the two and a half. Oh, yeah, 2.3. Yeah, so... It, in Victoria. It's, it's still... In, yeah, in Victoria. It's still not finished counting, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's around about that level. Can I give you a national number? Sorry. Yeah. To, uh, uh, so that's national. There. Yeah, I don't think it's got the percentages on the national one. Okay. Yeah. So what's your other strongest state besides Victoria? It'd be New, New South Wales New South Wales. Queensland. So New South Wales, if I scroll down to... See, I've got to click on show all. This is what's worrying me, not even the top five. Uh, 2% in New South Wales, 2.3% yep. in Victoria. 
and Queensland, if we scroll down to, um, see legalized cannabis beat you. You guys are all about legalized cannabis. You should have cleaned mm. up on that. Uh, Queensland is 2.4%. So yeah, we were so expecting- to Victoria, yeah. Expecting five and got 2.4. Uh, Hoping, well, no, I would, I would say expect is a strong. Oh, sure, I was hoping sure. for between four and five. Um, what but do we, we didn't get that? What do we make of the the poor, poor um, freedom friendly minor parties are up, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, collectively. Yes. Um, I can't remember what it is overall. I think it's somewhere in the order of 11, 12% collectively. Mm. And that means that um, we had a highly fragmented market for that vote. Mm. Um, you know, I think if you look at uh, the biggest spending one was UAP, right? I yes. think they got in Victoria 3.9%. So, yep. um, you know, they spent, what, what was it, $80 million or something, and they got 1.6% higher than us. Yeah, 39 Yeah. See, this is the thing, right? The Teal candidates won. Now, there's a few things about the Teal candidates. So, Monique Ryan going up against Josh Frydenberg and Kuyong, right? Normally, they have 500 signs up in that electorate, but I hear they did 5,000 signs this year. It's a lot of signs. Yes, and they have a massive vol energized volunteer base. So, it is a real grassroots movement. But at the same time, you pour that much money into anything, that really puts wins in the sale of anything. So, you look at UAP and Teal vote, I think, yes, there was a strong momentum behind the freedom vote of UAP. Yes, there was a strong community movement behind the teal movements around Australia, but the real thing is they're both rich. Mm. Yeah, so there's areas where the teals did well, very, very wealthy areas. Yes, but the campaign is rich. Well, yes, the camp, but they had money, clearly, mm. millions of dollars. And UAP as well, yeah. Yeah, well, they had crazy amounts of money. Um, look, I think, um, yeah, and again, with the teals, similarly to UAP, um, UAP actually had more fleshed out policies than the Teals, I think, because, you know, you well, you know, they had a list of policies. I mean, with the Teals in Victoria, I mean, what did they run on? I mean, they ran on climate, climate change, but um, didn't seem to be a lot of meat on the bones there with what they were talking about. They're just saying, you know, we like... Renewables. They say the virtues, science, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about um, integrity, uh, not sure exactly what they were meaning by that. I think they were referring federal to- Federal ICAC. Yeah, federal yeah. ICAC and this sort of thing. Um, but also uh, gender equality and some <coughs> other issues. But the primary one was that they were talking about was um, climate change, renewable energy, yeah. Which clearly worked. It appeared to. Because um, the Greens vote, the point of all this is to say the Greens were the big winners they were. in this election. Yeah, they had a very high vote around the place and also did well in getting a number of people elected. Is Australia going left? Because the Greens aren't just about save the trees. If they were just about save the world and save the trees, I would sign up. But mm. it's, it's, they're a very socially engineering party. They are. And the other thing is, I don't buy that the Teals are left. I Do tell. Them. Well, um, <clears throat> I don't think that they've sort of come from the traditional left movement. I don't think that your traditional left person that's part of the Greens would mm. see them that way. In many ways, what they're representing, especially on the climate change things, is uh, corporate subsidies is effectively what they're trying to do. They're trying to support policies that are going to channel uh, subsidies through renewable energy targets wow. through to renewable energy companies. Okay, that section where we're going to get to, I promise, energy prices, you're going to go off. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Hey, you know what we should talk about? Um, prices. Down, what is it? Down, down, prices are down. Is that the ad, the jingle? Yeah, Coles? yeah. No. I, I was hoping that that was going to be gone from my memory forever. So Sorry. Thanks for bringing that up. We're going to rewrite it now. It's up, up, prices are up. Uh, inflation is higher. We've had an interest rate hike. Petrol prices are up 12% since the end of April. Wholesale electricity prices are up 237% since the end of March. Uh, gas more than 300% higher than the average of the last couple of years. We do have labour shortages. We do still have COVID absenteeism. Uh, and the international environment has become more challenging. That was our new federal treasurer from the Australian Labor Party, Jim Chalmers. Get used to seeing him on camera. I prefer Josh Frydenberg simply because he's more interesting to watch. Uh, well, prices are up, my friend. I think we said it in the intro. Cucumbers are up, cabbages are up, carrots are up. Meat's up. Petrol. If petrol. you, if you, next time your girlfriend asks you to take her somewhere fancy, take it to the petrol station. 
people can't afford that. People can't afford it. Well, we will all just have to commit to electric, right? No, you can't do that either because Reamped Energy came out this week. The mm. CEO of Reamped Energy, who I'm with, I got this email. Uh, and said, hey, you need to leave us. Well, our prices are about to double, having just risen by 15% a couple of weeks ago anyway. Uh, this is extraordinary for the it CEO is. of an energy company to say, to say, leave us. And the reason, of course, is because they buy their energy in big blocks. So they'll buy 2 million kilowatt hours and then they'll sell that off to us. That's the retailer's job. And he's saying that the more people that stay with him, he'll be forced to purchase more of these big blocks and the wholesale market for energy is skyrocketed. So then he'll have to distribute that increased cost across his user base. So he's actively trying to um, kick customers off his network, keep his costs low. It's a fascinating scenario. Look, I think it was a bit of a, a, bit of a stunt what they did and it worked, it got attention. Hang on, whoa, whoa, a stunt to lose your customers? Yeah, well, I mean, I think... If you look at these companies, like you say, they buy yeah. in wholesale and then sell at retail. Yeah. Now, I think in the UK, they had this same sort of situation where a lot of retailers got into trouble because they might have been buying short-term contracts and then yeah. other ones were buying longer-term contracts. And if you buy short-term contracts and the short-term price yeah. goes up, yeah. then you find yourself uncompetitive yeah. and you've got no choice but to you know shut down part of your business. Which it's, is what he's doing. Which is what he's doing. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more trouble in the energy sector because of these issues because I don't think a lot of these retailers are going to be able to pass on some of the prices that they're going to have to That's buy so their wholesale electricity or gas at and um, it's going to be a big, big, big problem, I think. We should rename this whole show The Energy Show. It really is a big deal. <laughs> Look, before we get specifically in, into energy, let's just talk about the um, inflation deal here, okay? Uh, here's a, a short clip of um, Mike Maloney because uh, we need to talk about gold and inflation and when did this all begin? Out of line is Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Oh, wait, it's not. It's Biden's inauguration. Well, it doesn't matter really what party was in power. This is a bunch of currency creation coming back to haunt us. And it isn't just pumping up the, the stock markets and asset prices because that isn't where it's the only place that it's flowing these days. When they wrote a bunch of checks and sent them out to people, uh, and paid people to not work, uh, that uh, is part of what is coming back to haunt us right now. Uh, for those under the age of 40, the, so Edward Gofsky, uh, for those under the age of 40, the last time the CPI was 8.5%, the Fed had interest rates over 10%. We've currently got ultra-stimulating 0.25% rates. Rates are going way higher to fight inflation this will cause the popping of all of the asset bubbles, and that will cause the greatest deflation, I believe, in history. All right, inflation, okay? Uh, we don't understand inflation. So just off air now, you know, I was saying to you that prices are up, the coals thing, and you said, you, you, what did you say to me? I said, yes, well, prices are up, but what it really means is that the value of money the ability to purchase things with money has gone down. And that's because, mm. we've, as you said, we've got a massive supply of money through money printing, low interest rates, um, governments throwing it around. Um, and that lowers the, lowers the individual value of every dollar, which makes the prices of everything appear like everything else is going up. But it's really the purchasing power of your dollar is going down. That's what inflation We is. don't understand that. That's what he just said in the clip. He said that the, you know, the interest rates used to be... Uh, 10% back when inflation was 5% in the US. And now inflation is like seven, if you believe that figure. And, inf and interest rates in the US are at zero point whatever, 0 0.25. So we're in a hyperinflation, a potentially hyperinflationary policy setting right now around the world. I think that we're in a, um, in a perfect storm in lots of ways because we've had, like I say, years of printing money and, and mm. very, very low, in crazy low interest rates for a very long time. Plus, we've got very restrictive energy policies, which pushes up the price of everything that requires energy, which is mm. everything. Mm. Plus, we've had uh, international conflict situation, which you know disturbs markets and drives mm -hmm. up costs of oil and other things. Mm. Um, we've also had supply chain disruption due to mm -hmm. COVID restrictions. You know, there's like massive ship backlog in That's China right. and stuff like this. Plus, we've had a huge part of the workforce um, artificially 
unemployed because of vaccine mandates and things like this. Even if it's only 5%, that's quite a well, lot. That's a large chunk of the workforce. Yeah, don't talk about COVID or vaccines. All right. <laughs> so, but let's go to inflation because even, you, you know, you just talked about the supply chain pressures on, on monetary, on inflation and so on. But inflation has pre-existed. So if we give everyone a lesson on inflation, the bond market. So you made a joke earlier. What would you say? If um, you'll know when we have an inflation. You, you'll know when we've got trouble with uh, government debt when you start seeing uh, bond adver- government bond advertisements on Facebook. Which is exactly what we saw in the UK around World War One. So yeah. to fund the war. So what people need to understand is that money used to, you know, they weren't printing money. It was based on the gold standard and, and, and w- many wars were stopped because you ran out of your gold supply and you had to make, you just couldn't, f- wars are expensive, which is one of the reasons why, I, I didn't know this, one of the reasons why they had champions. It was much better to let your society continue to operate, both your societies, send out a champion. They can duke it out for however long you want. And then the winner wins. So you don't send your entire economy to war. It's cheaper for both sides. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people make this argument even in modern <laughs> days. We should just send the politicians out to fight each other. So. I love it. I love it. What would be your weapon of choice? Mm. Your LDP, Depends guns. Depends who you're fighting, I suppose. But yeah, I'm sure you'd choose a gun. Guns would be too slow. Uh, too quick, I mean. Too quick. <laughs> Yes, we want pain on our politicians. Uh, no, so World War One, the government runs uh, out of money to, f- the UK government runs out of money. So they do bonds in cinemas. At the back of the cinema, they say, come and buy a bond, mm. a government bond. So what they're doing is they're getting, they're trying to get the savings of the population uh, to into the government by issuing these bonds. And then they'll use that to fund the war. They only raised 30%, 30 or 33% for World War One. That's a problem. So they came up with an ingenious plan for their central bank to purchase the government bonds, the government Printing money. Effectively, yeah. Right? And then the other 60% was uh, uh, printed. And since World War I, we've seen this massive um, rise up in wars that just don't end. That would not be possible except that we're printing money to fund wars. Amongst other things, we're printing money for other things. But that enables war in a big way. Well, it does, yeah. And you're right, like the the idea of selling bonds during wartime was a big thing in World War II as well. Like uh, they used to have, you know, patriotic advertisements. It was one of their big... Big things. They bring back heroes from the war back to the United States and take them around the country on tours and, wow. and sell bonds. Like they had huge bond drives. And wow. for, for what you say, like they, the government uh, didn't have any more money, so they needed to get encourage citizens to uh, invest. Well, here's my theory, right? If if you didn't, if you were forced to collect the money from the citizens to to pay for your war. We'd go to war a lot less because we, the citizens, would like in, like in World War One, would say no. We don't want to go to war to that extent. Yeah, but a lot of the bonds now are not collected from citizens. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. bond markets are very uh, global now, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, a large proportion of people invest in bonds without even realizing, like your superannuation. A large proportion of your superannuation would be in government bonds, both Australian and international bonds. And we get a lot of international bond investors invest in Australia. I think. Mm. Um, when I was on the Parliamentary Accounts and Estimates Committee, uh, I think at the time, like there was about 17% of Victorian government bonds were from foreign 17. investors. Yeah, that's, that's from a lot. Foreign, foreign investors, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, well, I think we all need to educate ourselves a bit on inflation and what it is, because I was horrified to learn that, for, I saw an example in the United States of a house uh, over 80 years has increased by 99.7, I think it was, percent. Now, we think of inflation as a basket of goods, which the government gets to control what's in that basket of goods. That's a bit shonky. But putting that aside, uh, what about hidden inflation in some asset classes like housing? Because we as Australians believe houses always go up, like the value of houses go up, therefore the price, it's real value. But I'm wondering whether that's something as someone in the 80s, I've been um, manipulated to believe. It's not the case that all prices must always rise for everything for all time. Inflation is not the natural, permanent, mandatory state. No, absolutely. And there's been huge um, uh, property crashes in Australian history. Like in Melbourne, I think 1890s was one of the biggest property crashes in our history. Like it just caused a massive... 1890s. Life. In 1890, yeah. It was like a... Can't have a read about it. It's like it was a real disaster at the time. Really? Um, and caused massive, massive problems. But um, I think, yeah, like what you're saying with asset inflation, especially with housing, uh, money has to go somewhere, right? They're putting yes. all that money, they've got the low interest rates, yes. which 
if you think about what, a, what an interest rate is actually doing, the government is, or the RBA, is artificially setting what they see as the, as the price of money, right? As, yes. as the risk yes. premium. So this is like, this is the amount of interest that you'll get for effectively zero risk or very, very low risk. Yes. And if those rates are too low, we see what we happened with the GFC, yes. you incentivize people to take more risk yes. than what they naturally would. Yes. And then you get all these sorts of you know mal, uh, malinvestments type yes. situations. And I think that could be uh, what's causing, to some degree, the large uh, rise in housing. Like people don't want to put it in the bank because they get no no interest. Um, they see it as a you know safe asset class, so they pump more money into it. Into property. Yeah, into property. And I think one of the key things that uh, would prove that that's a uh, a thing is if you compare the rise in rents with the rise of property values. Rents, and it's not. It's done that. No, it's it's. it's gone wild so the price of property has gone gone up massively yeah but rents haven't so much you know um nowhere near as much as the price of property so that means that the investor's yield is going down yes and yes there has to be a bottom limit on that yeah so i, I was speaking to someone very connected a very wealthy guy uh does like wealth management he was saying that throughout covid the middle class, uh, the upper middle class, so the laptop class with high, you know, hundred grand plus jobs, they did so well financially, and they had all this money, and they didn't know what to do. And the government's handing out money as well, and they're collecting JobKeeper across their five hundred stuff, and they were just, where do we put all this money? And I was saying, well, where did it all go? Did it go into TV plasma sales or what? And they couldn't go on holiday. Uh, he said it all went into houses. All these rich me, clients were saying, I don't know what to, you know, not not super rich client, just like hundred and fifty grand. You know, professional wages and they're just pumping into property, pumping into property. And so I think what we're seeing is um, quite difficult to determine how much of a price rise in property markets are real value increases, market driven increases, and how much is uh, inflation inside that bubble? Because they removed house prices from the basket of goods, which is nuts. I always thought the rent was in it, but I don't think house prices were in the CPI. The house basket. prices are not. No, but this rent one? is. Is it? Yeah, rent is. That's okay, because rent hasn't had a bubble. Yeah, it's gone up, but not nowhere near as much as houses, is yeah. my understanding. Yeah. All right. Well, we they need- also include tobacco in there. In the basket of goods? Yeah, yeah. And, and alcohol. But I always thought it was weird including tobacco because that naturally rockets up anyway because of the tax increases. That they Isn't put it on. like 70% of the tobacco purchase of taxes now? I don't even know. It's, it's high. Like it's over 50, I think. I'm so glad I don't smoke anymore. It's yeah. too expensive. And also you won't die. Hey, yes. so let me give you a couple of recommendations on the inflation thing because we need to move on to energy. Uh, Educate yourselves, people. Uh, look, here's some, some options. I've been listening to a number of podcasts. There's a lot of economists out there who are, are quite good on this. Listen broadly. But one in particular, um, uh, Saif Dean Amos. He's on Lex Friedman's podcast. Uh, check that. Number 284. Um, great way to learn about what is money. Where did it come from? Well, uh, you know, The fact that we don't realize that money is receipts for value. We think that money is value in itself when it's not. Go and educate yourselves. Learn about inflation. And... Uh, once you have a good understanding of inflation, you'll be uh, much uh, better able to look at things like energy policy, which we're about to look at right now. Some retailers are resorting to the extraordinary step of telling their customers to go elsewhere. With the state of the wholesale electricity market, we can no longer save you money, which is what we're here to do. And the best way we can help you save money is to suggest you switch away. Last week, the industry regulator increased benchmark prices up to 18.3%, saying it's getting more expensive to produce power. But experts say the true state of the market is far worse. They say soaring wholesale electricity prices are threatening to send many smaller retailers to the wall, and it's consumers who'll bear the costs. Well, welcome back, everyone. And uh, now we're going to talk about my favourite topic, which is energy. And as I said before, I think energy relates to many of these other issues that we're talking about, such as climate change, because that's really energy policy, and some of these other international conflicts situations. So um, what we saw was, we discussed earlier, the very extraordinary step of a company, a retail energy company, getting rid of its customers because of the way that they'd structure their contracts. I think that this is like the canary here, isn't it? Oh, yeah, okay, as in something bad's coming. Well, I think something bad's in progress right now. Um, Wholesale prices have surged. 
Surged. Surged. Doubled. More than doubled. Yeah. And there's so many factors here, I think, as well. Like 140%, sorry, 140% in 12 months, wholesale electricity prices, largely driven by surging prices for coal and gas. Well, you okay, you think there's many reasons behind this? I also do surging? think there's many reasons. Well, I think one reason is what we were talking about just before is inflation. So prices are going to go up regardless of the energy market just because- Because our money's out. crap, yeah. Because yeah. your money's going down. Yeah. Yeah. But also you've got, uh, they keep talking about, you know, this international conflict situation. I'm sure that plays into it. Plus, we've got very restrictive energy policies. We've got very high energy taxes. What do you mean? Okay, so restrictive energy policies before you go on? Uh, things like bans on fracking in Victoria, yep. nuclear, you can't even say the word because if you do, you, you're destroyed. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. A lot of people, you know, since the election, the National Party's come out strong in, in support. On nuclear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of people are talking about nuclear now. Um, Have you seen, so can I show everyone an image, an image of a, of a, a small modular reactor, we'll put it on the screen now, uh, versus a typical pressurized water reactor. I think people don't understand the technology of nuclear is not the same as Chernobyl and even Fukushima. Yeah, well, there's lots of different technologies, but yeah, the small modular reactor technology is something that lots of uh, companies particularly in the US, uh, pushing at the moment. Mm. There's lots of advantages in this type of technology because one of the big things with building a power plant is the upfront capital costs. Mm. Huge, right? So if you've got a really big power plant, whether it's nuclear or coal or any of these large scale facilities, you've got a very, very big upfront cost and then the running costs that's amortized over time. Mm. But um, the running costs are not really the main cost in it. The main cost is the upfront capital cost. Mm. Yeah, so, and that's that's similar to also uh, renewable energy projects oh, okay. as well. Like they have ongoing costs, but in a nuclear power plant, um, the fuel cost is actually a very small part of the overall cost, unlike a gas plant where you've got massive oh. ongoing costs, quite different, quite different that economics. Yeah. So what they're doing with these small modular reactors is um, quite an innovative model. They're, they're sort of leasing them. So you have it on a lease arrangement where um, the idea is that uh, you have a small scale reactor. And when I say small scale, you know, they can sort of fit on the back of a big truck. Yes, thing yes. And, they're prefabricated in a factory, yes. they bring them on site, and then you have a contract with the manufacturer to refresh the fuel rods and do the maintenance and all that sort of stuff. Wow. And um, that changes the economics of it. And because they're small scale, they can put them in lots of different places where you can't put um, large yeah. scale plants and use them for situations like um, remote mining operations is one application that they're trying to look at. Military already uses it. Yeah, well, the military US, already used them, them in submarines. In submarine. um, and you can move them too. That thing yeah. there has got an issue, chuck it on the truck, drive it away. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest costs for remote mining operations is diesel because they need electricity, yes. right? Yes. Um, lots and lots of electricity. Yes. And uh, so you don't need a big, uh, especially with diesel prices at the moment, you don't need a big... Um, gap to make that economic when you bring yeah. in something like a small module reactor and some of these american companies are trying to um you know to our mind put well it's illegal in australia though oh is like, it illegal it's illegal it's that's illegal. ridiculous it's illegal so we've got a federal ban on uh nuclear reactors and the nuclear supply chain uh, with the exception of Lucas Heights reactor in Sydney. Oh, for medical research or whatever. Ah, uh, they use it for all sorts of applications, not just medical. So they got an exemption is the point though? They've got an exemption. And Victoria as well, we've got a ban on not only uh, everything to do with uh, the, the supply chain, but also even exploration. We've banned exploration of for course we have. Um, uranium and thorium and other materials, yeah. We're special here in Victoria. Hey, did you know when you have a nuclear submarine come in from the United States, they're technically breaking the our ban, aren't they, if they dock in Sydney or Melbourne? Because um. I saw a news article about this. Uh, I haven't done enough research on this, but w w it was some weird thing about we're banning nuclear, but we're allowing the nuclear submarine to dock. Anyway, don't worry about yeah, it. I'm not sure about the legal side of that, yeah. All right, so um, energy policy. Um, yes, they're all the reasons why energy is so high. What's going to happen here? Because the push to renewables... They claim that it's cheaper. Well, I'm not seeing evidence of that yet. The renewables only are cheaper, but... Um, they are. Well, the problem is, is that you've got to integrate them into a system. Now, everyone's talking about, oh, the high cost of gas, right? Gas is really expensive and it is really expensive. But not many people are asking, why have we got so much gas electricity generation in Australia at the moment? And the reason is, is because gas, you can... Uh, 
a gas plant, a power plant, you can start it up really quickly and shut it down really peak, quickly. Peak is, yeah. Yeah, peak plants. So that when the wind <coughs> stops blowing, you can start up the gas or when it's night, you can start up the gas. That's why we need so much gas. The coal stations can't react that quickly. They have yes. you know, that steady yes. uh, output. Load, yeah. yeah, steady output, but to ramp it up or down takes a long time with gas, uh, with yeah. coal. But with um, gas, they can just ramp it up really quickly and we need that. So, um, you know, more renewables you've got in the system, they've got more gas to back it up. They yep. keep talking about pumped hydro and batteries, but the yep. batteries have got really a still fairly small scale. There's they are, yeah. The only real large scale pumped hydro we've got is Snowy 2.0. Yep. Um, you know, I've seen some reports of lots of different suitable sites for pumped hydro throughout yeah. Victoria, but I haven't seen any greens or teals pushing to flood <laughs> national parks and build them yet. Hypocrisy, thy name is teal. Hey, so um, what about uh, this idea of baseload power, which we're kind of going away from AGL shutting down plants all the time, a few years ago, shut down coal power plants. I think another one just went offline, but we're deleting our baseload, <clears throat> going to renewable and the renewables have issues and more and more, we're really just converting our baseload to gas, I feel. We've got so much gas in the system right now. Which is a problem when gas is so expensive and, and becoming scarcer. Uh, look, I think, you know, lots of engineers <coughs> I've spoken to have like poo-pooed this idea of baseload because they say in a modern network, you can switch things in and out actively. That's a good point, that's a good point. Which is a good point. Um, however, you still need something there when the wind's not blowing or it's night time. Uh, now that something could be a gas plant and in, in most cases it is a gas plant at the mm -hmm. moment. It could be a battery, it could be prompt hydro, but something has to be there to provide the energy when uh, the renewable energy isn't, uh, pro isn't providing energy, right? And I think this is what um, some people have said, one of the big sort of design problems that we've got here is that we're building an energy network based on supply rather than based on demand. Do you know what I mean? Like we're saying, we're building wind turbines and solar panels that, you know, they produce electricity when there's wind or when it's daytime, but not necessarily when people want to use it. And mm. so you get these weird situations, like I think it was last year or the year before, they had a massive, uh, electricity was, the wholesale price of electricity was massively negative. That's right, because so of renewables. Pay, yeah, yeah, you had to pay um, other states to take your electricity off your grid, otherwise yeah. it was going to overload your grid. Yeah. And that was because, you know, we had a situation where there was lots of wind and yeah. there was lots of sun, yeah. but people didn't want it. Yes. And so they had to get rid of it. Now, batteries alleviate that somewhat because yeah. they can soak it up and yeah. then give it back later. But there's not, like the batteries on the network at the moment, they're not sort of, they're not storing days of electricity. They're mm. storing small Hour, amounts yeah. to sort of stabilize the network. They're not storing massive amounts of electricity. The only yeah. thing that is storing massive amounts of electricity on the network now is really the, the uh, Snowy Hydro 2.0. So they've got a pumped hydro project up there, a system up there that is storing some. And that, that was originally started um, many years ago. I've actually been up there camping to Talbingo Dam. Okay. And um, it's quite fascinating if you if you um you can go send your boat around the dam and go fishing and stuff but i got warned they said don't tie your boat up too close because the dam goes up and down really quickly when they let oh. the energy out and you'll end up with your boat getting grounded up, grounded or, or yeah so um but that was originally because the coal plants there produce constant electricity yes. but at night you don't need as much electricity so yeah what they do is use it to pump water up the hill into Gra the dam gravity, and love then, it then, then feed it back the next day when they needed it. But of course, there's a lot of green tape around that because you, you, you're flooding a lot of national park to make those things. Well, that's why they're upgrading existing systems and not mm. building many new ones. Um, Maybe we need to go to distributed power storage, like with the Tesla Powerwall and Sonnet. There's other brands as well, because the I, I've seen, the, I used to work for Tesla. I've seen when you can have your home in a blackout and you've got a couple of Powerwalls or whatever, that seems uh, very convenient. And then you, you, you can actually go off grid a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had family members that used to live off grid and um, it's a lot of, lot of money. Like again, you've got to the invest. upfront capital yeah. cost of those batteries. Like if you want to go, if you want to have a battery that's just gonna help, you know, in a blackout or something, you know, or a day or two, a day supply or so, let's say. Well, it might be one Powerwall, which is 10 grand, which is, uh, what are they, yeah. 10 kilowatt hours or something like that. Yeah, but if you really want to go off grid, then you need 
a few Two days, or three, yeah. uh, and that's much more uh, serious investment. 30, 40 at. grand per yeah. house. Yeah. And, the, and even then, most um, off-grid uh, scenarios that I've seen still have diesel as a backup. You, or you have to. You yeah. have to, yeah. you have to, yeah. Um, but, you know, solar is predictable. Like, if you've got solar panels on your roof, it's yep. mostly predictable. You know, you can get cloudy days and rain and stuff, but mostly you know when the sun's going to come out and when it's not, and you can manage it. Wind is less so. I've seen wind installations at personal homes, but most of the people I've spoken to... <laughs> really? Say, yeah, you can, get, you can get like a... It's like a tower with a generator at the top. Or um, through Kuyong, we should see this. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. quite small ones, but they're... The, the, the problems, sorry. Do they actually produce? Or? Yeah, yeah, they produce. But the problem that I've heard from people who've had them is that unlike solar, it's not predictable. So oh, if you're yeah. trying to run a predictable and reliable system, yeah. but you don't know when the wind's going to blow, then it's sort of just like a little bit of bonus charge to your batteries rather than yes. something that you would want to depend on. Okay. Whereas solar is much more dependable. Okay, so what do people do for... Uh their electric to secure their electricity. I suppose that there's nothing they can do. We're all just victims to big policy, which is where you fight. Let's fix energy policy. Yeah, well, I mean, our energy policy is around uh, getting rid of subsidies, so not particularly for petrol as well. Yeah, for everything. Good. For okay. All, all, right. all right. energy right. sources, because we don't think the government should be picking winners and losers in technologies. Right. We think that. Um, it's much better to let the market do its job, right? Yeah. And the energy market is one of the most interfered in markets that you could possibly imagine, right? Yeah. Everyone's interfering yeah. in it, government's interfering in it. It's gonna get worse under Albo. Uh, well, I don't know, we'll see. That's but, the uh, natural inclination. He's already talking about artificially raising wages, which is gonna go well, isn't it? Inflation's well, I think terrible. they're gonna to have to do something about gas. Like, I think that a lot of the people that voted for Labor, thinking that they're not gonna get big fossil fuel uh, projects, I think they're going to be very disappointed. What, I think they're going to do a fossil fuel project? I think that they'll have to start approving lots of gas projects and oh. lots of fuel projects, yeah. Have fun with that poisoned chalice is the feeling I'm getting for Albo. He's walking into some bad... There's a good cartoon. I'll see if I can put it up on the screen now. Um, the, he, he's climbing the mountain with Penny Wong and Plibersek saying, we're almost there and he's at the top and he can see it. And over the top is like all these problems. He's inherited some uh, difficult times, shall we say. I don't uh, envy the treasurer's job at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, they're, look, they're going to have to take action uh, to do some sort of repair to the budget and some sort of energy stuff. If they're going to do nasty things, they're going to do it early in their term. They're so, supposed to, but they may not. They may be weak well, and we'll, never do it. We'll wait and see. Okay. Wait and see. Yeah, I don't know. But I think they would be, they would be under a lot of pressure at the moment to uh, increase energy supply. How, however they can okay. and um, that will involve gas projects okay well it's Trump's fault anyway orange man bad <laughs> hey um, are you ready to move on to quite a serious segment mm. okay um, we are going to be joined on the panel by another guest let's um, talk about something quite sad but very important have a listen Continuing, I must inform you that anything you say or do may be given in evidence. Do you understand that? Yeah. Do you know what day it was when she allegedly went missing? No. Are you responsible for the deaths of any of these women? <laughs> Most of your classic psychopaths have no remorse. Detectives revealed their latest lead in the hunt for Debbie Freem's killer. What they love is attention. Three women were stalked and murdered. We were running a major operation involving 200 detectives. We did a door knock on this particular house. He said, come in. And that's when it all evolved. We invited him back to the police station. He was so enthusiastic to play the game. He said, I did it. I said, did what? I committed the murders. Was that the weapon you used? Yeah, that's, that's the one. What makes a serial killer? That rare body that walks among us, hiding in plain sight. He got 30 years minimum. The notion of closure is totally irrelevant. He'll never not be a risk to the community. Never. 
Back in 1993, the city of Frankston was gripped by terror. There was a, a serial killer on the loose. This man ended up murdering uh, three young women and attempted to murder another one. Uh, he was convicted of those crimes. Uh, he also committed a number of other crimes that he confessed to but was never charged with. And the, the, the final girl who was murdered, uh, Natalie Russell, happens to, be, um, happens to have been a friend of mine at the time. I was also a teenager at the time. I was a 19-year-old man. And uh, she was also friends with uh, the other guest that we have uh, with us today, uh, Karen, who was uh, Nat's best friend. Um, so I think firstly, uh, what can you tell us about you know, the feeling of Frankston and the city at the time when all this happened? Because I know that you and I yeah. saw it as like, um, you know, Karen, Karen and I were friends at the time as well. Um, we saw it as something that was happening on television. Yeah, um, it didn't really feel real until it became very, very real. Yeah. 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 And the um, period of time between his crimes was quite short. So Very short. Do you know, and a lot happened in a very brief period of time. Yeah. Uh, so no, uh, absolute, it was just, it felt like it was happening somewhere else. But it yeah, clearly wasn't. Can I, Karen, can I ask what was the mood of the city at the time? Was there, was there a fear that he was a danger to anyone? Absolutely. Yeah, well, nobody knew who it was to begin with. He wasn't oh, arrested right. until uh, Nat's murder. So he was arrested uh, the next day and confessed to the crimes of everybody. So, um, yeah, a lot of kind of fear and disbelief, I guess. But nobody knew who he was at that time. Nobody knew who was committing the crimes. Yeah, and the thing that I remember at the time as well was after the, the second murder, there was a massive manhunt. Like mm. they had information okay, caravans huge. set up everywhere. They had cops everywhere you could see. Yeah. Um, there was all sorts of warnings on television. It was like a, a total, you know, I, I've never seen anything like yeah, it, even yeah. since actually, you know, in the 30 years since, um, yeah. wow. haven't seen anything like it. And yet, amongst all that, with all those police and everything, uh, he still managed to commit another murder, like mm. right in, like in broad daylight, yeah. it's absolutely incredible. Can I ask, how, how does he do that? So with Natalie, are you talking about a violent crime on the streets in broad daylight, he walks up to someone and attacks them? Or does he lure them away? Uh, he would find secluded places uh, and, yeah, make an attack on people. It was random. Um, basically, he was just, yeah, basically. Yeah, this one a little bit better, hadn't he? Yeah, like... They, they pl he planned them a bit, but um, basically he was just looking to attack women. So he didn't stalk Natalie, for example, for six months? And no, no. He knew what he wanted to do, but he just had to wait for the right opportunity. This is more scary because we're all at risk. It was random. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so this man, um, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm just yeah. I'm not that familiar with this. So the, the Frankston serial killer, is that yeah. what he was known as? Yeah. Okay. And did he give any reasons why he did his crimes? That He's, he hated women. Yeah, that's yeah. what he said at the time. He yeah. hates women. And, um, yeah. So during his confession, there was a number of other crimes that he admitted to, um, you know, multiple what? stalking offences, um, breaking into women's houses and murdering their pets, um, uh, assault, uh, I think he drew a knife on a woman that was a cashier at a, at a, yeah. at a supermarket. Yeah. Um, there was a whole bunch of stalking crimes. Let's say, I mean, I think in the confession they said that he'd been fantasizing about murder since he was 14, 14. years old. You know? Okay, so he has some serious long-term issues. He, Very serious, okay, yeah. He needs to be locked away for a long time. And has been. Has been, yes. So what happened subsequently was there was a, a trial, of course, and um, this was uh, Justice Vincent was the judge at the trial. Um, and he was sentenced to uh, three life terms for the murders, plus eight years for the attempted murder. There was another girl that actually- Rosa Toth. Yeah, Rosa Toth. Um, she survived. She escaped, yeah, she was lucky. She, she managed to escape, but he did intend to murder her as well, is my understanding. Um, and he was sentenced to three life terms plus eight years How without much is parole. That? 25 is a life term? No, life without parole he was sentenced to. When you say three life terms, do you mean, isn't there a number of years? Like a life is 30? No, so in this situation, a, a life meant life because there was no parole period set. Oh, so until you die? Yeah, that's prison. what he was sent to. And Justice Vincent at the, at the time, they got uh, lots of um, uh, 
medical experts uh, to give testimony to the you know prospects of rehabilitation yes. this sort of thing and they all concluded that there was no no currently available treatments or uh, technologies available to rehabilitate and the judge said at the time if you were ever to be released it must be through the executive will of the government of the day that's so, what he said and that that was it and we we, we had some closure on that that's um, great. because you know I actually went to the sentencing um, uh, by myself rather foolishly but um, what well, foolishly I was I didn't know what had happened until I went to the sentencing oh. police didn't release any details oh, and it was it was worse than what I imagined right um, <clears throat> however there was uh, an appeal now this appeal was on uh, fairly technical grounds and I didn't really understand it at the time and it's only recently that I've bothered to go through all the details and everything all the court transcripts to see you know exactly what happened but the in the appeal court, there was three judges, and um, two of the judges decided that there was an error in that um, he had he should have set a non-parole period rather than uh, allowing the government of the day to make that decision. That's mm -hmm. what the appeal court uh, decided. Mm -hmm. um, one of the judges dissented on that and said that the original judge got it right. Mm -hmm. And what they did in that case was they reduced, they didn't reduce the sentence, they left the sentence as it originally was. Um, so it's still what, three life terms with uh, eight years, but they set a non-parole period of 30 years. So effectively he's in jail for 30 years and then he can try his hardest to get out repeatedly. Yes, and that 30 year, that non-parole period ends next year. So, um, Many people at the time, including us, were extremely uh, shocked by what happened. We didn't really understand it. Um, and I think it's fair to say there's lots of people, probably thousands of people, who for 30 years, including myself, have been um, concerned at the prospect of him ever being released because we're, we, don't want, uh, we don't want him to hurt another woman. Um, and we believe that he is totally capable of that. And I think most of the people involved yeah. believe that he's totally capable yeah. of that. Do we have expert opinion that has assessed his current state after 30 years? Well, I imagine there has been, but that wouldn't be public information, of course. So we don't know. Okay, that's um, important. Yeah. That's important okay. to know. Um, however, we are concerned at this possibility. That's why Karen and I, um, last year, in May last year, mm. uh, we made it public. Yeah. We decided that you know, we needed to speak out about this. It's not really something that we enjoy speaking about or it's like speaking about, um, but we thought that if we didn't speak out about it, no one will. And we realised that it's traumatic for people to hear this story, um, but it's also going to be traumatic to have uh, parole hearings and stuff like this mm. next year. So, um, and then I every two years after and that. And then every two years after that. So I don't think that that... So I apologise to anyone listening that is traumatised by hearing this story. Uh, but I don't think that it's avoidable. I think we have to have this conversation, which is why we brought it up. So what I did after we went public with that, so there was a number of um, news reports and we did radio interview and all sorts of stuff like this. Can we watch one, the Nine News one? Yep. Okay, let's see what Nine News had to say. Family and friends of a victim of one of Australia's worst serial killers are pushing for Paula Denyer to never be released. Natalie Russell's parents say they can't have peace knowing the murderer could be paroled within two years. Brett McLeod reports. For the family and friends of Natalie Russell, this is the latest painful step in a journey that started 28 years ago. It's just something you don't get over. It's, it's, you learn to get out of bed every morning and put one foot in front of the other, but it, it's there in front of you all the time. In 1993, Frankston and surrounding areas were living in terror. As searchers began the hunt for clues to the third slaying of a woman in nearly two months, Natalie was 17 in her final year at school. I met with the uh, Attorney-General, the current Attorney-General, and I, I told her, uh, you know, uh, the story. And um, 
we weren't prescriptive with the government. We didn't tell them what you know, we expect them to do other than we want some sort of guarantee or some sort of reassurance. I think that's what people want, some sort of reassurance that he's never going to harm another woman. The that's government can't say that except to say we'll keep him locked up. There's a few ways, there's a few mechanisms they could use, but I mean, yeah, keeping them locked up is the obvious one. Um, I think the thing, you know, people I've spoken to have said, look, you know, the possibility of him getting parole is very remote, right? Because yes. of the seriousness of the crimes, etc. However, parole boards have made mistakes before, right? And right. I think um, there are some cases, you know, I think maybe you and I have spoken about justice and things like this before. Um, you know, some people talk about the, the mad, the bad and the sad, you know, people that end up in prison and for the most part, people are, um, you know, most of these cases are, uh, you know, the, 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 the mad and the sad, right? There's a very, very small number of people that are really, really bad like this and I think it's quite clear by the nature of these, these crimes and the, the, um, the premeditated nature, the 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 lead up, which was you know years and years to to what he did, um, means that I think that this is a very uh, unique case in many ways and requires us to you know look at what what we're what we're doing with with the justice system because this is going to have to be discussed next year. Mm. Um, and that's why we're bringing it to people's attention. So what are you arguing for these changes? So like I said, I haven't specifically said to the government what I expect you, them to do, other than we want some sort of reassurance, some sort of reassurance. But what are their options? What could they do? So they've got a few options. So um, some options that have been suggested to me could be that uh, people with multiple life sentences uh, should require ministerial approval before applying for parole. You're talking about creating one. a new law in our criminal that, justice That laws. would be one thing. Or okay. there could be um, the parole board itself has guidelines on how they operate in certain situations. So there could be um, a review of the guidelines. But you're um, talking about tightening the noose for every, not just Denya, for, for every single person hereafter. You're talking about perhaps a required and a necessary loss of liberty, but permanent. This is odd to hear it from you. Mm. And yeah, and, I, and I'm acutely aware of that, you know, like one of my, um, as you would know, one of the, the things that I believe in most is defense of liberty. But we also have to acknowledge that liberties should be taken away from people who cause harm to others. And that's, of course. And that's, but here's yeah. what I'm concerned about. If Denya is as we've heard, he's not rehabilitatable, uh, keep him locked up, make custom legislation, what have you. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about abuse of law and process 10 years from now, which is what we're seeing in many other areas of our mm -hmm. society. So I, I'm, we have to find a way to deal with this without throwing away our long established history of rule of law and separation and of powers. And this, and, and this is why I'm not you know, being prescriptive to the government on how they actually do this. I'm very open-minded about it. We haven't, we haven't said, you know, in technical details to the government, this is what we want you to do. They've got all the resources of the state to think about this and come up with solutions, right? Mm -hmm. um, we want them to come up with some solution. That's what we're asking for. Um, that's, you know, acceptable to the government, acceptable to us, and, you know, acceptable to people who care about our justice system, I think. And I don't think that that's an impossible ask. I think that there, there must be a way of doing this. Um, you know, like I said, I've had people suggest to me ways of doing it, but um, I, I, I think that they, if, if the government of the day doesn't have the resources to come up with a solution for this, then I'd have to question, you know, mm. yeah, what's the, what, are they, what are they actually, you know, they, they, need to, they need to take the community's concerns seriously about this because it is a serious concern. We are concerned about having to go through this process every two years. Another concern that we've got is, um, you know, this was a long time ago, 30 years ago, right? Um, a lot of the people involved in this have passed away or are, are much, much older now. And this is why um, Karen and I came to the conclusion that um, 
you know, if we don't do this, still needs then, a voice. Yeah, who is going to do it uh, if it's not us? Uh, and so you, you kind of like the last two standing to wave well, this flag. Well, there's, there's others. But there's plenty of other people supporting, but certainly we've tried to be loud about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, no. You know, look, what, when I brought this to light, um, you know, I was uh, elected representative. Yes. To represent Southeast Metro region, which includes Frankston. Oh, this wow. is absolutely a concern Very, of yes. the people of Southeast Metro. Yes. So even if we ignore my personal connection to the case, yes. um, I would be pretty derelict to just uh, ignore this yeah. thing on the horizon, you know, okay. when I'm in that situation, right? Well, thankfully, you've got this stand documentary about it to raise awareness, and you've got one year to push this. Maybe a little less, but yeah. yeah. Well, less. Was it uh, July next year? He's up. I don't know exactly when it is. Okay. I'd have to okay. check, yeah. but because yeah, I think these dates can change and stuff. But yeah. Okay. Well, I, it's a it's a it's a big problem to solve, but I hope you you do solve it. I think everyone watching would be supportive of keeping this guy somehow away from us mm -hmm. for the safety of all. Mm -hmm. Thank you for um, being bold enough to speak out against it, Karen. Thanks for having us. I knew it was wrong, and I knew that I had to leave him. And that's what broke my heart, because I didn't want to leave him. I thought if I got up out of that room, I'd leave the best thing that ever happened to me. And I wish I could sit here and say I stood up, and I walked out of that house, and I drew a line, and I stood up for myself. Looking at the dirty carpet, trying to will myself to get up, to walk out of the door, because I knew I needed to. And I really slowly, I stood up, and I remember looking at him in the eye, and just looking at him, frankly, because I didn't know what else to do. And before I know it, he starts crying. And, you know, like, I, I had never seen it an adult man cry. Um, I didn't even really see my dad cry at my grandma's funeral. You know, it's just, it's weird. And he's crying. Okay, everyone, that was the news of the week. That was average. Johnny wins the, so he, they did a defamation trial on each other. I know you don't know much about this. Johnny Depp won. If you've watched any of the actual trial, it's hilarious watching Amber Heard pretend to cry. She literally will, she literally said, she did it like, like she was in a film. She goes, and my, my dog got stung by a bee. My dog got stung by a bee. Like she did two takes live on the stand. Well, you're going to get done for defamation too. Talk about it too much. But um, uh, they're actors, right? Like, I mean, you know, that's their job to act. And putting people in court in this sort of situation where they're actors sort of yeah. seems like it might be destined for this sort of outcome, right? Look, the point of this segment with Amy and Johnny is to say, who cares, okay? Can YouTube please stop recommending um, Amber and Johnny clips? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, that was the People's Project uh, back with you today for quite a heavy discussion, but very important ones on energy prices, on uh, Denia and so on. But I hope you've enjoyed this show. We're gonna do it every week from now. And thank you for joining us for today. Thank you for having me. We are going to try and fill this giant panel with more and more people as we go every Friday. Uh, if you'd like to see more of this content, it is all on our website, discernible.io. Uh, people ask, how do you fund this? With my house deposit. Uh, if you wanna support us, we're still losing money, but that's okay, we'll keep going. Uh, you can support us by uh, joining us at our private community, which is at discernible.locals.com. In there, we have picnics, we have, in, in, we have um, restaurant visits. Uh, I'm in there all the time talking to people. It's the best way to reach me, discernible.locals.com. And other than that, uh, see you in a week's time. I think next week, we're gonna be doing a big panel full of high-ranking Esther employees, Ambulance Victoria paramedics, uh, a VicPol person, and I think a nurse. And we're gonna discuss your favorite topic why are we not allowing them to work? 
Band mandates. That is a very serious topic that um, has affected many people. So I look forward to watching it. Mm. See you later. <laughs>